Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, we proudly bring to you at a Studio 212 in the heart of Seattle, Washington, this is Physical Culture Radio. I am your super dope host with the most, Greg Jones, at Coach Greg Jones, Instagram and Facebook, along with my super dope host, Chris Edmonds, lead mountain dog diet trainer. Chris, how are we doing today? Having a great Friday, man. Ready to be on. Good, man. It is supposed to be 85 degrees here in Seattle, and we've had a stretch of nice weather, so I think the rain is behind us. And you can just feel it in the air. People get so much more motivated um, when the weather's nice here. They do more, more active. The attitudes are better. Motivation goes up. It's it's really crazy because it rains so fucking much here. Yeah. But um, w- today's episode number twenty four, guys, is our grab bag. So we're going to be talking about a lot of different things. Round two of grab bag. We're going to be talking about supplements a little bit and the Perry workout window. And Chris is going to pick his top supplements. I have a couple top supplements. We're going to start off uh, the episode talking about there's a new wellness division that's going to launch in 2020 for women. Uh, and it's going to be uh, at both levels, right? IFBB and uh, NPC. I would have, well, I'm, I think it would probably start like, you know, they did it with women's physique, bikini. They would start NPC. They'd develop that for a year or two, see how it goes. And then they'll start holding pro qualifiers for it. Okay. So why don't you go into what you know about it? I saw uh, uh, the Mannions, uh, Jim Mannion and his son and um, Sandy, you know, the head judge, talk about this new division. But I didn't really understand all the details of it. Um, and you know a little bit more about it, research a little bit more. Go into what you know about it, Chris. For sure. Um, so it, this class actually originated in Europe, and it was really popular in like South America and Brazil. Um, the, the physique they're going for, and, and I'm going to try to explain this the best I can without showing pictures to you guys, is it's a lower body dominant female class. So it's actually like you want huge glutes, very muscular quads and hamstrings. You have on a small waist, but then the upper bodies aren't nearly as developed as the lower. So most people can, you know, consider it like the, the Brazilian body type. Or I think when you and I talked about it, you said, "Oh, this is going to be great for girls who just want to train lower body for the most part." And yeah. you know, uh, to me, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin in terms of getting girls ready for a class like that. Um, would I do it 100%? But, you know, until that first round of females comes through and you can kind of get an idea of what they're looking for as far as leanness, as far as how muscularly developed you want them to be, both upper and lower, um, that would be really hard. Now, I think that, that like every class, um, it evolves. You know, if you look back at, say, 2013, the Olympia for men's physique, when uh, Sadiq was doing really well, is much smaller than what the guys are winning now. Um, the guys who are winning Olympia now are giant dudes. Um, or, you know, very similar with the way Classic was. Classic is judged very different now than it was when it started. The same thing with women's, uh, right. cl- women's physique. It used to be a bigger version of a figure girl. Now it's pretty much molded into a smaller women's bodybuilding, which is cool in my opinion, because I like that look anyways. To me, it's very yeah. Linda Murray-esque and, and her physique speaks for itself in my opinion. Um, but, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, the reason they're looking to expand is they're looking to reach more people. And for them, if they reach more people, that means more NPC cards, more show fees, you know, 
more people coming to the venue to support their friends and family. Um, so, I mean, I, I get why they're making more classes. The problem I see with it is if you take a, you know, say Masters Nationals, which is a three-day event, and it's pretty much 12 hours a day for all three days, how long are these shows going to run? Um, I mean, they're going to be an right. eternity. I mean, you think about how many classes there will be when you factor in novice and teen and uh, juniors and masters, like at a, just a normal regional level, like it's, with adding classes, you know, where I always wonder is, are you bringing in new people from outside of the current group of competitors or will you simply be shuffling the people within the division? Like, does that make sense? Yeah. You know, because well, I think, if, go ahead. if you look at a lot of the pros, I know some pros that turn pro in bodybuilding and maybe there are smaller guys like Bantam Bates or Lightweights guys that turn pro in physique and then they switch to classic physique bodybuilders that have switched to classic physique or physique because they didn't want to play the mass game and build up for the next fight and take a bunch of years off and get bigger. So they switched to an appropriate division where they could be immediately competitive. Um, I, I think I, 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 and I, and I have mixed emotions, um, about how, the criteria for the men's divisions and the criteria for the women's divisions are, I think the women are going in the right direction and, and providing different, different divisions and different criterias. Uh, but an emphasis on something being super developed. So it used to be 10 years ago that bikini was nothing more than white, like a Hawaiian tropic thing. You had the best boobs and butt, look good. And now it's about conditioning. It's about, you know, if your shoulders are cut and you're lean up top and you've got that waist popping small, but, but you know, and, and, and your glutes look good and the presentation and kind of the, the, the swag that the, the girls have, um, wins bikini and personality counts. Um, and then there's a subjective thing and then you've got figure, which is a little bit more developed, but it's a complete body. Bikini is complete body. Um, this new division is going to be lower body emphasis emphasized, but then you're still going to have, you know, I mean, a waist has to be tight and I, I'm sure the upper body can't be sloppy. Like it has right. to be <laughs> conditioned, but, but you know, the girls with the biggest hams and the biggest glutes and the biggest quads are going to win. Right. Um, is what it sounds like. Um, and if you look on social media today on Instagram, look at the fitness girls, a lot of girls are in the mindset of training glutes and legs several times a week. They're not really emphasizing their upper bodies. They don't want big shoulders like figure and physique girls. And so I think it, I think it's popular and it's going to be popular to the masses. It's going to get more girls competing who don't want to necessarily build up their upper bodies because a lot of girls are really worried about looking like men, right? You know, as much as, as much as there's a bunch of girls that want to do figure and women's physique and really build up the upper body and have striated shoulders and big capped off delts, you know, from front to back, there's equal amount of women that just want big fucking legs in a tight waist and they don't want all that upper body, um, definition. So I think it's a good thing. Then on the guys side of things, the problem I have is the board shorts and never, um, it not being a criteria to have any kind of leg definition 
or size to go along with the upper body. And these guys have big jacked upper bodies. They're hiding their legs. Most of them have small calves. Not the calves are really judged anyway, as you've pointed out before. But, but, but my point is that, you know, you can skip leg day, right. And just work on your upper body and get it jacked and win shows. And I feel like that's not a complete body. I feel like that's not a complete judging of a body. And I think the reason they're do it, doing this is for monetary reasons. Oh, it's God, bringing yeah. in money. There's a lot of guys that do it. So it's bringing in money to the promoters. Um, but I think the fundamentalists would all agree that if you're going to, if women are all judged head to toe, why shouldn't guys all be judged head to toe? So I'm not saying that they have to have, you know, legs that are, cross striated and you can see the rectus femoris defined from, you know, the, the quads and the development and striated glutes and all that, but got at least bring, you know, some tight legs. You know, he, he, here's my thing, Greg. Um, I, if you look at a lot of the guys that are top pros, as far as men's physique, a lot of them have good legs. Some of them have great legs. Yeah. Um, right. You know, so I think you were, and they train gonna... legs and yeah. yeah, a lot of them train legs cause they and... realize the benefit. You know, I would love to see those shorts cut in half um, and the lower yeah. portion of quads and hamstrings be judged. I'd like to see them hit a couple poses, too, um, as opposed to just stand from the front, stand from the back. Like, I, I don't think – I'm sure those guys you – know, listen, if you follow their Instagrams, they all hit side chest. They all hit most musculars. They hit front double biceps. Like, those dudes would like to hit some poses, and I don't see any reason why they shouldn't be able to. So, in my opinion, right. you cut the shorts in half. You let them hit a couple poses, you know, maybe a front double and a back double or – a front lat spread, rear lat spread, or shit, even hit a classic bodybuilding pose um, from the front and the back. And that would, to me, add validity to the class. Now, I think where you would see trickle down from loss of revenue would be at the local level, at the regional level, where the guys are going into men's physique classes at a very immature body, meaning they aren't very developed in the lower body. And right. you, they may say, well, I'm not ready for that because the shorts are cut in half and I have to show off my quads that I haven't built yet. But if you look at the extreme levels of the national levels and, and of the pro ranks, most of those dudes have been training like a bodybuilder since they were 13, 14, 15, and their legs are developed. They just chose a class that fits their shape and structure. Maybe they're you know right. a good-looking guy. Maybe that just fits their personality better. Or maybe they already have a niche kind of carved out in that realm, so they don't want to cross over into bodybuilding where – if you look at some of those dudes stripped down, they have impressive physiques where I think the reason they don't do that is because if you go to the re local level, the regional level, listen, when we're getting sprayed tanning, you, you get to see those guys' legs. And, and I'm not saying all of them, but a good portion of that level is very underdeveloped. So I think that's the reason they don't do that, even though I would like to see, at least in the pro level, get those shorts cut in half and add some, add some more to me, more substance to what separates and delineates the top five versus the bottom five. Um, I'd say the right. Arnold or the Olympia. Um, you know, something right. cool that I put on here is if you look at all the, the the progression of this sport as a whole, you know, typically when a women's class gets added, you usually see a men's class added not too you know, one or two years later. And, you know, that's sure. what I'm, I'm curious about is, are they going to look to expand the men's division? Because if you look at it, you have, you know, you have giant freaky bodybuilders, then you have 212, which are still giant freaking bodybuilders. They're just short. And then it goes classic, then it goes physique. So, you know, where could they go with potentially the next men's division? I don't know. Um, I don't know if you have any ideas on that. 
Um, I, you know, I, I think they need to, I don't know. It's going to come down. I think at the end of the day, it's going to come down to dollars and cents and not oh God, yeah. what their fundamental beliefs are about the body. Right. Um, and, and where the judging sh- should go. And a lot of these judges are purist physique and, and bodybuilder types and grew up, you know, a, a lot of the judging panels that I've seen and I, and I've judged a couple of shows as a guest judge and I've been asked to do get on as NPC. I got a buddy of mine that's going to be getting on as NPC judge. And most of these judges are, you know, kind of retired bodybuilders or, you know, uh, fitness gals or, you know, physique or, you know, kind of started in the bodybuilding realm. So I think they have that purist standpoint, but then they look at the, their bottom line. Cause a lot of these judges, you know, are friends with the promoters and yep. they promote the shows and they like the industry and they like, you know, their friends making money and they don't want to rock the boat on that. Um, and, and I, I, Totally agree. Like I understand where they're coming from. Here's where I, here's where I, here's where I think they're adding the next guys class. I think with as big as men's physique guys are getting through the upper body, I think they're going to add a men's division that's smaller and maybe call it a model division of more of like your runway model, your like uh, Abercrombie and Fitch, Hollister type models. Yeah. I really yeah. believe it because that's going to get a whole nother body type. You know, you want to be lean but not shredded. You want to be have muscle definition but you don't want to be jacked. Like. If, if I had to bet money, if they're going to add a men's division, I bet you that's what's next. Because with as big as men's physique guys are getting at the national and, and uh, even regional level bodybuilding shows, yeah. you watch. Yeah. They're going to bring another division to get guys that are like, have been lifting for two or three years, or maybe guys that don't want to get j- jacked. Like, you're going to see that. And what that's going to do is that's going to bring in other competitors or mean people that haven't been competing. Um, to get right. popularity and notoriety. Because if you look at like the mainstream YouTube pages and stuff, there's a lot of guys who just have good abs and nothing else who have a huge following. So the MPC, the IFBB would do really well with getting those guys on board for competing. And then next thing you know, all those followers are now doing those same shows and they're making tons and tons of money. So again, not necessarily what I would be into. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, if I had to bet money, that's what I would say. Um the yeah. last thing here I want to talk about is I'll ask you first, then I'll kind of share my opinions. What is your opinion of all the classes, men and women as a whole? Like, do you think there's too many? Do you think there's too little? What do you think? I don't think there's too many. Okay. I, but I do believe if you add women's, you add guys. If you need to make a show four days instead of three, because you're adding extra divisions, and in novice and juniors and, um, you know, open and, uh, masters and, 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 and the shows are bigger and have that many more classes, that many more competitors. I, I feel like you do the title nine approach. So do you know what title nine is with mm-hmm. athletics in college? And then in the 19, I think 1970, no. they passed something in the NC2A called title nine. Title nine said women were to have equal amount of sports to guys. Um, so what they did, a lot of wrestling programs got cut because the women had volleyball and a lot of program, a lot of guys didn't, or a lot of schools didn't have guys volleyball. So to make it equal, they had to drop male wrestling because, um, they were adding female ones and not adding different male ones. And they had to have equal amount of sports and, you know, women were playing football. So they were down a sport there. (laughs) Um, and I think you take the same approach. I think I believe in equality uh, 
as far as shows and divisions. And let, let's let's face it, you know, um, in the sport that we grew up in, um, it was a male dominated thing. And there it was a it was a very counterculture type of women that um, did this to begin with and that that were vastly outnumbered by the guys. And now if you look at a show, you know, it's it's the physique guys and then the bikini guys that make up the bulk of the competitors. If anything, if you look at figure bikini, uh, those two divisions alone um, are bigger than way bigger than the bodybuilders. Right. Okay. Um, and so I, 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 I think you, I, I think you bring both of them up and do some kind of an equal amount of divisions, wherever that looks. And I like the idea of the model um, mm-hmm. division. And then you, you get these big jacked physique guys and you put half shorts on them. Yep. So it's not the complete knee board shorts, but there's a form fitting short that goes halfway down the thigh where you can see the beginnings of the quads and the being, you know, not quite like a classic physique, but right. like maybe halfway in between and, and, and the stretched kind. So that's on you tight. Um, yep. and then, and then, and then you add this women's and, and then you start there and then you have the equal amount on both sides. All right. So here's my opinion. And now I want you guys to listen. I'm not literally shitting on any, any other classes. There, I want you to listen to my proposal before you come to any judgment. So in my opinion, <laughs> okay. yeah. I'd like to see two women's classes and see two men's classes. And that is literally it. Um, and the reason I like, I want to see that is because I want the depth at shows again. So, you know, where you're in a class of a middleweight, um, if it's bodybuilding and there's 25 guys in it, not a class of middleweight where there's three guys, there's, you know, 20 physique dudes and there's you know 10 classic physique guys all in that same weight range so i'd like to see to me a classic bodybuilding and i'd like to see a bodybuilding show for men and then for women somewhere between bikini and figure and then a upscaled version of um like the top end athlete of you know the the women's physique i think those would be the two classes for females i think that should be the two classes for men and then everyone just go at it like they did in the early 90s. And in that way, if you earn a pro card. Do you realize you, how big these classes would get if you lumped yeah. everybody into those? That's what I, see, that's what I think. That's the, way they, that's the way it used to be. And that's why I liked it. Is you think about right. that, you start getting upper echelon. And that way, you know, think about this. Now, if you go to nationals, you may know the top two guys in heavies and super heavies. You don't know the the vast majority of the competitors like you used to. You can go to nationals and know the top 15 guys because they've been competing in the circuit for 10 years. Now, if you're a pretty good bodybuilder and have good genetics, you're a pro within three years. I want to see that yeah. slow down so the quality of pros increases. And then in return, if you look at like the guys who turn pro at middleweight, light heavyweight, heavyweight and even supers and now now today's time they're having to compete two or three years as a pro before they're ever getting a good look back in the years of sean ray kevin lavrone flex wheeler dude those guys were turning pro and winning arnold's the next year you don't see that because the physiques aren't there um so right. to me by reducing the number of classes you also enhance the amount of judging that takes place at a show because you have to give people more looks because the classes are going to be bigger and deeper. You know, if you look at a bodybuilding show at a regional level these days, you might have five to six per class, maybe 10 in the smaller divisions and, and, 
in the super heavies, you might have three or four good supers. That's garbage. Like back in the 90s, yeah. in the early 2000s, you'd have a class of 25 heavyweights at a regional show, and it'd be a fucking battle to be top 10. Um, so right. I, I'm all about competitiveness and hard training. Now, I know financially that is super stupid. <laughs> I'm not an idiot. Um, right, in, right. in Chris's dream scenario, that's what it would be, right? Um, it would be, you know, two two divisions for women, two divisions for male, and it would be, all classes would be hyper competitive, and you would start to see the genetic rise and the people who work hard year after year rise to the top, as opposed to seeing a lot of newcomers, so to speak. I mean, listen, I had a figure girl four years ago who competed in a natural show, won her pro card. We completed competed in the Mike Francois a year later won the overall, competed at North Americans, was a pro. Her first pro show, she was top 10 at North Americans. Or, sorry, at New York wow. Pro. Like, yeah. that wouldn't happen because the competition, the moment she walked out and did quarter turns at North Americans, duty was hands down. She was by far the best on stage. It wasn't even freaking close. Yeah. They right. looked at her. She did quarter turns. They put her to the side. They didn't even judge her because that's how much better she was. Wow. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, that was someone who worked really hard with me for two years and was extremely genetically gifted. Um that wouldn't happen. That would be a rarity. So, yeah, and in my dream right. scenario, that's what it would be. I realize that that's not going to happen because it would be very, <laughs> very financially unrewarding because what would happen is, you know, you'd have guys and girls get out of the first call out and they'd never compete again. They'd say, fuck this, I'm just going to build my Instagram and make money. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I can speak firsthand um, from the divisions and the depth. And my first bodybuilding show when I was playing college – football in the mid nineties and I did the Emerald cup and there was 18 guys in my class, light heavyweight. Yeah. And you know, I was actually five ten then I'm a little shorter now, <laughs> but I was actually five ten, and I came in, uh, about 210 pounds and I didn't know anything what I was doing. I did my own diet and didn't come in super peeled. I was big. I was strong at the time. Strongest probably I've ever been for a show. But I didn't know how to die. I didn't know how to come into a show. But all these guys that were first two rounds of call-outs um, were 5'5 five, five and 5'6. Five, right. And I was standing there towering over these fucking guys that were <laughs> at the limit of 198 pounds. Of course, this was in mid-90s, the heyday of what I feel uh, was bodybuilding's peak yep. as far as, you know, and... And I realized, I said to myself, okay, I, I'm playing college football. I got my senior year coming up. Um, I, I'm, I'm in college. I'm going to school. This was fucking hard doing this prep and going to school and practicing football. And, you know, and, I'm, and, and my focus was my senior year and trying to play at the next level after college. So I, I got out of bodybuilding at the time. But I also realized that I needed to put on 20, 30 pounds to be competitive and compete as a heavyweight because these light heavyweights are too fucking short. And now fast forward 20 years to me getting back on stage again um, and competing as a light heavyweight. um, I then could hold my own in open divisions that weren't as competitive because there's so many people doing so many other divisions and bodybuilding has gone down so much that you, you know you almost feel as a bodybuilder you're like you're the last of the mohicans yeah, right. um and and it's it's 
I don't know. It's like it, it, as a competitor, it's kind of cool in a way because you're you're a little bit more top of the heap, right? But it's not as competitive as it was. So no. the you know that competitive landscape isn't the same as what it was, and it is more watered down. Yeah, um, I mean, so he, I, here's my thoughts on it, man. You know, you hear all these people say, "Oh, look at all the new classic classic bodybuilders or classic physique guys." Like, look at this new division brought all these new people to the sport. And I'm like, no, it didn't. You just had guys who were competing in bodybuilding drop down to a classic uh, weight class. That's all it is. They just changed divisions. You didn't bring anybody new to the sport. It just redistributed the wealth, essentially. So bodybuilding got smaller and classic got bigger um, because it grew. Um, so like, that's yeah. my whole issue with it is people are like, oh, you know, men's physique brings all these people to – to uh the sport and i'm like are they really or just people who should be doing bodybuilding aren't doing bodybuilding because i think it's an easier route to a pro card it's an easier route to an arnold classic win and anymore i mean if you think about it man like and this is what i try to explain to guys that that come to me and they don't know what division to go in they're like oh i'm just gonna do physique and i'm like okay cool i need you to realize that even at a regional level you're gonna compete against 20 other dudes in a bodybuilding show, you at the max at a regional level, you're going to face against 10, right? It's going to be more like five. Right. And they're like, oh, I didn't consider that. And I'm like, yeah, you know, to me, you pick your division based upon your shape, structure, and where you want to be. Um, yeah. Not necessarily where you think it's developmentally wise. Because, again, yeah. like we started the show with, those men's physique dudes at the high level are monsters. Like, they're big. I don't care what anybody says. They're big. They're not yeah. as big as the yeah. open men's in Olympia. Don't get me wrong. But they're still big dudes. Um, I mean, they yeah, pushed yeah. 220 easy on stage. Um, so just some right. food for thought. <laughs> okay. So the next topic we're going to go into, uh, why don't you go ahead and go into your top supplements? We're going to sure. talk about the supplements. Uh, we're going to go into the peri-workout window. And peri-workout nutrition We've mentioned this before uh, in the supplementation um, show, and I, I think we've mentioned it a few more times in other shows when we were talking about nutrition and uh, prepping and, and dieting and, and, and what have you. Um, so explain peri-workout nutrition to the people that haven't heard before what our philosophy is and why we do it. And then I'm going to get into the background after that of, of where it actually originated too. Okay, cool. Yeah. And, and here's actually where I want to go with it, Greg. I know I didn't tell you this. Like I'd like to, to you to tell me what you like to eat pre and post. And then I was going to talk about that as well. So peri-workout yeah. nutrition, like that doesn't, a lot of people now assume that's just what you drink or eat during your workout. And to me, it goes well beyond that. So Perry workout is the meal before what you drink during and then what you eat afterwards. So right to me, what I really, really like pre lift is, and I'm speaking specifically for me, it's going to be eight ounces of cooked chicken. Um, it's a cup and a half of uh, Jasmine rice and it is, um, an apple or, um, some pineapple. And I like that pre lift. Um, if I'm, if I'm in the off season and I really want to help pack one weight, um, I'm going to add a tablespoon, of, a tablespoon or a half of a tablespoon of coconut oil to that. And I'm going to eat that to where that right. meal is finished an hour before I do my first set. So that's what I like personally, uh, before I lift then. So you asked me to pick a, a supplement of the month. So for me, I chose injectable carnitine. So for you guys that don't know what that is, 
Um, that you see L-carnitine pills all the time at Vitamin Shop and GNC, and sadly, they're just a waste because your body doesn't digest and, and they aren't very bioavailable. Um, so what that means right. is your body just doesn't absorb that nutrient very effectively. So you pretty much have to take an entire bottle to get what you would get out of injecting L-carnitine. So if you're in pre it used to be a big seller, just, just, just so people know. Oh, in yeah. the 90s and early 2000s, it was a huge seller in supplement stores. People, oh, yeah. God, yeah. Oh, without a, a doubt. On it. Um, that and vanadyl sulfate. <laughs> yeah, oh, 100%. So, you know, with injectable carnitine, you know, everyone hears the word injectable and like, oh, my God, is it legal? Yes, it's 100% legal. Um, yeah. Even though when you get the bottle of it, it's going to say for oral consumption only. <laughs> I don't know why they do that. It's just crazy to me. But anyway, let's talk through that. Um, so I had that meal about an hour beforehand. If I'm pre-contest, that's the only time I'm going to use injectable carnitine. I know there's a lot of other applications out there, like guys use that to load their gear cycles on or to make their body almost like very, very efficient for nutrient partitioning and keeping them a little bit leaner. So you can use it in the all-season. I like to keep my guys on it only in the pre-contest at about the 8 to 12-week mark. But yep. anyways, so you have that meal, and then about 15 minutes before you would train, you want to take your pre-workout supplementation, wherever that may be. I personally like uh, Granite Supplements Premium. It's just the best one, in my opinion. Um, so I take that, and then I'll literally shoot that injectable carnitine into whatever body part I'm going to train. So if it's lats, I put half of a – so let's talk through this, too, and get really inform, informative – I want to get a hundred unit insulin syringe, um, and then I'm going to fill that all the way up, which comes out to right at 400 milligrams of carnitine. So I'll put half, meaning um, 50 C, uh, units in one lat. I'll put the other 50 in the other lat. If I'm doing arms, I'll shoot bicep, tricep. I'll shoot in my upper pecs, quads, calves. Doesn't matter. Shoulders, super easy. It goes in like water. Um, yeah. And then you start training 15 minutes later. The first thing, how you know it's working is you start profusely sweating. <laughs> um, and I'm telling you, it, you will get a better pump in that muscle. It'll become more vascular. I don't know if it's all psychological, but it really does work. And it's super, no, they, super they've done They've done research, and it, and the research shows that when you're taking injectable L-carnitine, it helps move fatty acids into your cells to be burned for energy. Oh, yeah. So it's, yeah, this is, this is a valid thing. And... Um, I haven't been in a prep for a couple of years now, so I haven't been doing an L-carnitine, but when I start, whenever my prep starts, I will start this protocol and I probably won't side inject it like you. I'll probably just go into the glute with it. Um, as my trademark is striated glutes anyway. So, um, but, but it, 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 it does make you sweat. It does help. But I think if you do it, and I think the disclaimer here for for you guys and gals listening to this is if if you're in a caloric surplus and you take L-carnitine and you're taking in more ca calories that your body is expending, you're, you're, it's not going to then magically burn fat. So you have to be utilizing the fat and it'll help aid in that process, but you have to create a little bit of a deficit whatever that deficit is for you, 250 calories a day, 500 calories a day for this to be effective. So when coach Chris talks about doing this eight weeks before a show, or say you're dieting for two months, that means create a deficit and take this supplement. Otherwise I feel like you're wasting your time also yeah. just to kind of interject. 
Yeah. Without a doubt. So let's talk about how we load that, right? So there's two ways to load that acarnitine and shuttle it. The most easily ready available to shuttle that is if you use some Humalog, which is a fast-acting insulin, and you can shoot that anywhere between four and eight units with the L-carnitine. If you don't want to go the insulin route, you're just going to have to shuttle that with a shitload of carbohydrates um, to start that two-week process out. You don't need to keep insulin the whole prep. You just need to do it for those two weeks of that loading phase. So again, if you start it early enough and you aren't going to use insulin, you just have to keep that a lot of your carbs run your workout before to start shooting those L-carnitine into your body. Um, again, you right. can do it both ways. Load it with carbs, load it with insulin, whatever you want to do. Personally, that's a personal decision. I don't force that on any of my clients. I just say, here are our two options. What are we going to do? So... Right. From there, what do I want to drink during? Um, I want to have either an essential amino acid product or I want to have Pepto Pro, which is casein hydrolysate. Um, that's going to be your, so to speak, protein. And then for carbs, a lot of people use all different types of things I've seen. I've seen and personally tried Vitargo, Waxy Maze, Gatorade, um, Carbolin. The best thing, in my personal opinion, is going to be hands down Holly Brandt cyclodestrin. That's just digest super easy for me. It helps me get a pump. That's what I like. And then I like to have 10 grams of creatine amount of hydrate with that. So again, the amount of carbs I have within the intro workout that may in the off season, it gets as high as hundred pre contest. I've gotten that as low as 15. Um, again, right. that just tapered down depending upon what your goals are at the time. The last thing I want to pull is that from a diet. In my opinion, if I can leave that in there as long as possible, I want to do it only because that's what's going to help give me great workouts and productive workouts. And yeah. that's huge for keeping and maintaining muscle within a caloric deficit. So from right. there, um, if you have that drink, and for me, that's just a quick disclaimer. I like to mix that with anywhere between a liter and two liters of water and drink that throughout my entire workout. I'll start sipping that as I'm walking into the gym. And by the time I do my last set, it's 100% down. So if you're a big drinker, two liters. If you're not a big drinker, one liter. Um from there, I don't need to eat again until I feel hungry. Um, if I'm pre-contest, it's going to be 15 to 30 minutes. If I'm off-season, it's probably more like an hour. Um, if it's a really hard workout, probably 45 minutes. Um, and then for me, post-lift, um, if I'm in the off-season, I prefer a shake um, as my protein source. If I'm pre-contest, I want real food. I typically opt for 8 to 10 ounces of fish, meaning from cod, um, for my carbohydrate source, I always like cream or rice, and then um, that's pre-contest and off-season, and then I'll always, in the off-season, throw in a piece of fruit. So that may be apple, banana, shitload of berries, doesn't matter. Um, the amounts depend upon what I'm going to do. I'm always going to have roughly 60 grams of protein or more, and then for carbs, off-season, I'm going to have anywhere upwards of 100 grams of carbs, and the pre-contest, that may get as low as 30 to 35, so... I'd like, if you so, don't mind, how about you? I want to hear what you like to eat before and after because, you know, that depends person to person. You know, I switch back and forth between cream of rice and whey protein. And I, I sometimes will do a tablespoon of peanut butter in there for a little bit of fat to keep me going through the workout. Um, or I'll do uh, chicken or turkey and white potatoes uh, cool. before the workout. And I like to do that about 45 minutes before. Um, usually it's my second meal of the day and then I go work out and then I have meal number three and then I have an intro workout and then meal number three is my post-workout okay. um, typically in my day-to-day uh, -day 
regimen. I like to, I will sometimes go 225 grams of rice uh, pre-workout. Sometimes I'll bump that up to 300 if I'm, if I've got like a leg day. Uh, And then I, I usually always go, I'll either do 300 grams of rice afterward. um, And I go back and forth between using turkey and then sometimes I do beef post-workout, but I'll usually get a little extra, um, like a cup of berries or, um, a little bit of sorbet, fat-free sorbet. And I, I, you know, these carbs for me shuttle right into the muscle. I do not get (laughs) fat at all from my pre and post-workout carbs because it's right around the workout. I'm just training and my, my body just gobbles it up. I mean, I'm a, in between 220, 225 pound bodybuilder that's, you know, usually in between 10 and 12% body fat in the off season. And, um, if for me, if I eat carbs late at night, that's when I kind of keep my fat. But if I, if I, in my fifth and sixth meal, if I cut the carbs and fat and go, or go real lean protein, fibrous vegetables or fermented vegetables, I will get so freaking lean so fast, you know, excluding carbs from meals five and six, or even just number six, that I can pretty much eat as, I mean, not <laughs> right. as many carbs as I can fit in, but I, I can do, I can do a good 300 grams of carbs pre and post. Let's say post is 150, pre is 100, and my intra is 75 just offhand. Um, that's a good value for me as an over 200 pound bodybuilder. Uh, and then in the first meal or meals number four through six, I start cutting the carbs. So instead of eight ounces, I do four ounces. Um, or, or instead of 225 grams of rice, I go 125 grams of rice and I will start leaning out in that process of cutting carbs at different times of the day. If I'm just trying to maintain, then I'll keep that eight ounces of carbs um, in meals four, five, and six. And I, and I can usually eat a extra piece of fruit at, at, at one of those feedings. Um, personally, as far as, you know, my muscle goes and, and, and fat loss as I'm prepping or recomping or whatever, whatever stage we're Dude, at. When you wake up, are you starving or do you have to be up a while before you're like really hungry? No. No. It, and the first thing I do when I get up is I have my, um, I have almost like a bulletproof coffee. I do my co- I do at least 10 grams, my type two collagen proteins and some French press coffee. And then I use something with real low carbs. It has unsweetened vanilla in it, but just has like 1.5 okay. grams of fat. And I'll, I'll usually sometimes get up and have, and then I, I do that. And about a half an hour later, 45 okay. minutes later, I have my first meal. So, um, I usually have right. that coffee to wake of up course. and I'll drink water first. I'll drink eight ounces of water. Then I'll have the coffee, the bulletproof coffee with the collagen proteins. Then I'll eat my meal, but I'm not, I don't wake up and immediately hungry. That said, when I'm dieting and creating a deficit and we're going from, 400 grams of carbohydrates down to 300 
down to 200, <laughs> then yeah, I so wake yeah. up fucking so, hungry. That's that's so right. <laughs> it depends on where we're at. Right. So we're for me, I wake up all season or pre contest yeah. starving. So my first meal is pretty close yeah. to. Even if you're even if you're pounding forty five hundred yeah. or four thousand calories, yeah. Even day, to, I, dude, I'm smashing food right now, and okay. I'm like, I cannot wait to get out of the bed and eat this meal, which is <laughs> for for my breakfast every morning. It's the same shit. It's um, three whole eggs, a cup of egg whites, um, a, a scoop and a half of isolize for my protein and fat. Um, for my carbs, I have a cup of oats, two slices of Ezekiel bread, and a half of a grapefruit every morning. Um. And that goes down so smooth. So, like, wow. I'll get up when I'm helping, like, Daxon get ready for school. I'll drink some alkalized water to kind of get my digestion primed. And then, dude, I am hungry. Like, I cannot get that meal made fast enough. Um, and I'm gobbling that down within yeah. 40 minutes of being awake at the longest. Um, so, yeah. It's a, that shows you the difference of, yeah. you know, people, you know. <laughs> yeah. So... To, to go into the history of inter-workout drinks, you got to go back to 1965 and the coaches and the physicians at the University of Florida uh, wanted to figure out a way to hydrate and get electrolytes and, 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 and somehow mitigate the hot weather practices um, in Gainesville, Florida with the University of Florida Gators. Um, so the, the, the team trainers went to the physicians and said, our guys are fucking dying. You know, they're, we need to develop something that can help them recover. They're cramping, you know, this is, this is, we we gotta, we gotta figure something out here. And And plain water wasn't enough. So the, the, the physicians, uh, helped out the trainers and the coaches and developed the first uh, Gatorade model. And they put sodium and potassium and electrolytes um, along with carbohydrates, sugars, in a drink. And they flavored it orange and lemon lime. And they gave it to the uh, the players and the football team. And interestingly enough, in... Uh, and this was in 1965. So in 1966 and 67, the team got better, played in the Orange Bowl. Um, their athletes seemed to be better primed. This trickled its way into the NFL. And these college coaches um, at first gave this protocol to the Kansas City Chiefs in 1969. And this slowly went into the NFL from the NC2A and now over 70 teams uh, in the NC2AA uh, use Gatorade um, as intra-workout. And when I started playing junior football, they gave it to us in these little plastic bottles with the little plastic spout. And they would bring out a six pack of these things and hand it to all us ballplayers in, you know, in like at, at breaks at the end of the quarter um, on, on timeouts and we would slam Gatorade. So this was late seventies, early eighties that I was exposed to this and it helped it. And I, and there's research behind this. The research is, what is that? 50 years now? It's 1965. Yeah. It's over 50 years. This was developed. And I, I think, um, 
they asked a bunch of questions. So they asked the questions. The sports scientists said, okay, what is occurring to the structural protein components of your muscles when they get worked out and overloaded? So they're breaking down. Your, the protein structures in the body are going catabolic. You're literally tearing the muscles up and you're going into a catabolic state um, when you work out. Now, I don't care if you're doing endurance training. I don't care if you're weightlifting. I don't care if you're on a football field or soccer field running for two hours and hitting uh, rugby, it, basketball. It doesn't matter. You you are breaking down muscle tissue. What? And then the other question is they said, shouldn't we be addressing how our muscles are broken down and how they can optimally build back up during the recovery process? And when is the optimal time to start that? Well, what they found is the optimal time to start that is when that is happening. You don't wait until the post-workout window in this super compensation period to optimize that. You're fucking you're catabolic right then and there. So if if you're on the field and you're practicing at three o'clock and you practice for three hours and then you don't eat until six o'clock, that means you're being catabolic for over two and a half hours. The same thing if you if you drive to the gym and just have fucking water. And you eat a meal an hour before. So let's say you eat a meal at two o'clock and you work out at three and you work out for 90 minutes and you get home at five and you eat your meal at five 30. You that's, that's three and a half hours. You ate your pre-workout meal at two. You're not eating till five 30. You have a big window there that's being neglected where you could be shuttling nutrients into the cells. And the best way to shuttle essential amino acids, creatine, glutamine, little bits of, of protein, um, the best way to shuttle those in, into the cells and to break that catabolic process is with carbohydrates. They've, they've shown this since the 60s. Um, so the science is behind it. And then they said, well, okay, should an individual who's lifting weights for 45 to 60 minutes have the same nutritional requirements as an endurance athlete or for someone that trains for two hours or more? When the training protocols are different, should nutritional needs and protocols vary as well? Yes, absolutely. So if you're lifting weights and breaking down muscle cells, you need, you need essential amino acids. You need the building blocks of protein because you're breaking down protein. If you're just sucking up fat and carb stores and you're endurance training and you're not using a lot of fast twitch fibers, you use a little more slow twitch fibers, then I would think you would need more carbohydrate heavy, the the gels, the things, the bananas, the Gatorades, the things like that. But if, if, if you're doing weights and training weights, optimally you want creatine to be saturated in the cells for, for muscle volumization. Uh, you want the building blocks of protein. So you want amino acids in abundance. So 10 grams of EAAs. And then you want carbohydrates in the form of highly branched cyclic dextrin in either 50 to hundred grams would be my recommendation. And you're going to shuttle all those things into the muscle cell as you're training and trust me around that training window, guys, you are not, this is not, you're not going to get Fat. I try to get this through competitors' minds, and I have a. This is a hard sell for females. I've tried to make females do intra-workout drinks, and they can't wrap their head around why they just wouldn't do post-workout carbs. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
And I have a shit of a time. I, I, I my actually, I have a few jujitsu competitors that I, you know, even before John came out with Recovery Factor X, um, and his carb products that I would put on plasma, and my 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 jujitsu people, my MMA people understood it, and they drank it, and they said, "Whoa, I feel so much better." Like the next day, I'm so much more recovered oh, yeah. from two hours of BJJ training when I take it than when I don't take it. And I'm like, well, yeah, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. Um, and uh, you'll find the same thing with your training with weights, guys. When you take this and with when you don't take it, Mark Dugdale, <laughs> he's he was sponsored by Biotest and, and had taken plasma for, God, I don't know, probably seven years, eight years. Tim Patterson, the owner of Biotest, um, sponsored Mark. And he was so adamant about his inter-workout drink when he would go on the road with Christina um, and he would work out at other places and he would sometimes forget his plasma. It would be like freak out time. They would go get other stuff. They would go get other stuff to take and waxy maize and, you know, carbolins and all the, all the different dextrin, dextrose, uh, not dextrin, but dextrose. And he'd be, it's just not the same is the highly branched cyclic dextrin. So when you get used to it and then you see the difference back and forth and it's just, uh, this is akin to, you know, when you talk yeah. about the joint formulas and being on collagen peptides and, and being on, uh, animal flex and being on high amounts of fish oil and things like that. And then you do that for several months yeah. and then you take that away and then how your joints feel or how your recovery feels when you take that away after your body's getting used to it. It's the same thing with this. Let me tell you, this, this protocol. you'll get a laugh out of this, man. So when I was in college, I was kind of doing this, but didn't know what I was doing at the time. So my pre-lift in college was I would go to the dining hall and they had like unlimited chicken breasts. So I'd get three of them and I'd get a big ass plate of wild rice every day. And so I'd have that. And that rice was probably, <laughs> Yeah. That, that, that was yeah, pre lift. That was the pre. I'd have that an hour before we lifted. Okay. We always lifted at eight o'clock at night. So at seven, we'd want, or about six thirty, we'd start walking over to the dining hall. And I'd have a big ass plate of rice. I, if I had to guess, it's probably two, two and a half cups of rice. I'd do three chicken breasts, and then I'd have a, a banana, an apple, a pear, an orange. I didn't care. Whatever looked good, I picked it and ate it. So from there, we'd go back to my dorm room and we'd get all of our supplements together. So <laughs> this is what I did. I, I was. I was um, really fortunate enough to be a product tester for bodybuilding.com when I was in college. So they sent me shitloads of pr- uh, products for free. So I would take some kind of pre-workout. I'd stockpiled wow. shitloads of NO Explode by BSN because I love the way the blue one tastes and they gave yeah. me a lot of it. So I would take that pre-workout <clears throat> while we were walking over to the gym. Halfway through the workout, um, I would have pre-mixed up two cups of applesauce and I would have branched chain amino acids stirred into the applesauce and I'd suck that down in the middle of my workout. So I'd literally go to my gym bag, suck it down. Immediately yeah. when we finished stop lifting, I would have um, cell mass, which was another BSN product, which is like a fancy version of creatine mixed into my chocolate protein shake. It tasted like chocolate covered strawberries. It was delicious. And yeah. then I'd have two, two sandwiches that I stole from the, <laughs> You should be you should you should you should still be <laughs> yeah. selling this shit. I know, right? You're like <laughs> so from there with that protein shake and cell mass, I had two on white bread sandwiches of peanut butter, honey, and banana that I had I have that immediately after I lifted. 
Um, like it was in my gym bag. So we'd eat that as soon as we finished the last set. From there, we'd go back to my dorm room on a George Foreman grill. We would cook a pound of ground beef and two sweet potatoes. And I would eat that every single night. Um, so that was my Perry workout window when I was in college. Wow. So if you look okay. how that's evolved, instead of eating yeah. applesauce and essential amino acids intra workout, which by the way, took some getting used to, um, that was, <laughs> um, people would look at me like, what the fuck is that kid eating? Um, but, and you think about that, that was about 50 grams of carbs, those 10 grams of branched chain amino acids. And that was my way to like try to shuttle nutrients and carbs into my muscle because as you guys know, I did high volume training. So I was in the gym for minimum 90 minutes, more like two hours every night from eight to 10. So yeah, that was what it looked like. And go ahead. So when I was in college and playing football, um, what we had was right. Joe Weeder's mass gainer. And I would always do that post-workout pre-workout. I would, you know, I, I would eat whatever at whatever time um while i was working out i figured out and i had some guys so i used to work out at this big bodybuilding gym that michael hearn uh actually started at in the 80s called body power in a neighborhood called northgate in seattle washington um this was a total meathead uh bodybuilder gym and um they uh my buddies got into my buddies that played football or got me working out at this place and they would, their bodybuilders there would give us diets. Um, one of the diets that they gave us to bulk, you know, as we were playing football and we were linemen and linebackers and wanted to be big and strong, we would have to eat, uh, rice, baked potatoes, <laughs> bran muffins, bananas, and one of the things that I carried over into community college was when I would go lift weights, I would inherit, I would take, I would cook a couple baker's mm -hmm. potatoes, white potatoes. I'd, you know, cook them, either bake them or, you know, nuke them in the microwave. I would take a little salt shaker. And as I'm working out, I would start chewing into this fucking potato and eating <laughs> the potato. And anecdotally, when I wasn't using the potato and then I, it's funny cause I got all these black guys <laughs> eating fucking potatoes at my community college. I was like, they're like, dude, how are you getting so fucking strong and big? And I said, well, you know, there's <laughs> right. a few different reasons, but the, you know, this helps, this helps eating this. And I had all these fucking guys running around <laughs> eating Baker potatoes, but you know what? Oh, they all yeah. got results and got stronger. Every last one of these guys, from eating just a plain baker's potato while you were working out, start chewing on it and finishing it as you were kind of finishing the workout, yeah, um, yeah. made gains. So they would drink, they'd have their water bottle and they start eating on the fucking potato. So I started this way back when, and just anecdotally, I was getting stronger and recovering better. So it didn't, I didn't have anybody coaching this to me except that, I knew that that was what these bodybuilders ate and what they did. They weren't doing right. it intra workout, but I knew that that was a carb source that you wanted in your yep. body around your workout. Um, so I implemented that and it, yeah. and, and it, and it fucking worked. So my supplement, what I want to go into real quick guys, uh, is injectable B12. And the thing about, uh, Injectable L-carnitine or injectable B12. You can get this shit on Amazon. Um, 
you with B12, what it does, and I started this back in double days in football too. So a little trick that we had back playing college football is when we'd be in double days, we go to Walla Walla. It would be a hundred degrees. It's the, you know, the beginning second week in August. And we'd have practices in the morning from nine to 11. We'd go eat lunch. We'd come back and practice from three to five or three to five thirty, And, uh, I don't even know who first told me about it. It was some guy that I played football with and said, Hey man, if you do this injectable B12, it helps you with more energy and it helps you recover, um, when you're in doubles. And it wasn't like that. Let's let's do this year round kind of thing. It was because you're so fucking depleted, and you're so just, you know, it, recovery is a real hard thing during doubles. It's almost a test of will to push yourself for four to five hours of practice a day in a hundred degree heat, um, and get through that. But once a week, we would take a shot of B twelve, and um, our recovery you know, doing this and not doing this, you know, would, would help a lot. This was back in the days where we right. took rip fuel oh, yeah. and ultimate <laughs> orange and, uh, gain, gainers fuel, ripped fuel. There was another fuel. I can't remember that we took, but that should all help too. Cause when you go home and take a nap and eat lunch and then get up, you take the rip fuel before the afternoon practice and you're right. fucking good to go. You were good to go. Hop, hop an ice bath after the morning practice. It's a whole science. It's a whole science of recovery and how you get through this shit as an athlete. And I think a lot of what's helped us, Coach Chris and myself, going into bodybuilding and coaching people is our athletic background and this extreme shit that we did playing football growing up and both playing college ball and learning a lot of this stuff, learning how to eat as an athlete, learning how to recover, how to build as an athlete and a football player because we're all about – you know, how strong and how explosive and how fast can you fucking be um, and how, you know, how hard you can hit people. Um, and if you're not eating and if you're not training and working out, you, you know, these bigger, more genetically gifted guys yep. <laughs> run you the fuck over. So we would do anything in our power to get bigger and stronger and to recover. And so we figured out all these ways we studied the bodybuilders and the power lifters and, and, and learned all these different techniques and ways to get bigger, stronger, and faster. And I actually went to a seminar called Bigger, Stronger, Faster. I don't know if you yeah, remember yeah. that group that was out um, several decades ago and the training techniques that they did. Um, but, you know, uh, so B12, getting back to that, what, what B12 does is it helps your body use fat and carbs for energy and to make new protein. It also is important for normal blood and help nerve functioning. So you know when, you, when you're training a muscle, and if you ever, you guys have gone through 90 minutes or two hours of a workout where you're doing you know, on the field and you're running and then you're lifting weights maybe after the, the, the practice and you start to shake and you get, this, you get this shaky feeling when you're done working out. I, I love that, by the way. I love... Eliciting yep. that response, but that's your that's your nervous system getting rocked, and you being catabolic from the workout, and literally you fatigued all the nerves so much that your 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 nervous system right. is is shaking. 
it's 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 in it's in, it's in an overly fatigued state of you overreaching into that workout. And B12 helps to repair the nerves and to repair and produce new blood for the body and kind of the turnover for the recovery behind that. So um I I I, to this day, I take, I don't take it year round, but I usually go through a bottle. They're like 50 ML bottles. And I get this through my naturopath. I think you can also get it on Amazon. You take about a CC a week. Um, and it, 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 it helps nerve functioning. It helps recovery. And, and, um, when you take it and then when you don't take it, you'll feel a difference in your energy. You'll feel more energy, energetic on B12 than not on B12. There's a lot of people that are deficient in B12 too, guys. A lot of people that are deficient in B vitamins that have impaired nerve function and nerve issues and nerve problems. And people that are don't eat enough meat, vegetarians and vegans are usually naturally deficient in this vitamin as well. So if you're not getting enough protein in, uh, you can be deficient in B12. The only way to figure that out is to get it tested. But that's my supplement. Um that I want to talk about uh, and have kind of detailed here and why we use it and why it's important. And, 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 and I want to give a quick disclaimer to you guys out there. Chris and I are not doctors. This isn't intended to be medical advice. Um, anything that you take um, that we, that we may take or have taken or know of people that take is not intended to diagnose, to treat diseases, um, you, you need to talk to a medical professional, uh, before you do anything. Um, we're just, we're just telling you what people do, what, what we do. Um, but, but again, we're not medical doctors and not trying to give medical advice when, when, when we give these protocols per se. Yes, sir. For Chris Edmonds, I'm Greg Jones. Thanks a lot for listening to another episode of Physical Culture Radio, guys. Yeah.